to this conversation facilitated by the Susanna Wesley Foundation. At the Foundation, we are a community of scholars and practitioners who promote dialogue, support research and create resources in order to equip churches and those who work in them and to facilitate the building of flourishing community through transformative change. You can find us at our website, SusannaWesleyFoundation.org. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Susanna Wesley Foundation, the latest in our series on crafting hope. My name is Emma Pavey and today I'm joined by Claire Watkins and Simon Sutcliffe for a conversation. And this is the first podcast where we're chatting in person rather than over the internet, so if you hear noises in the background that's why. And I'll start by asking them to introduce themselves. So, Simon, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'm Simon Sutcliffe. I'm a Methodist minister, but I've not got my own congregation or church that I look after at the moment for the last... Uh, about 10 years I've been working in adult theological education and I'm currently a learning and development officer in the learning network of the Methodist Church. And I'm Claire Watkins and I'm a reader in ecclesiology and practical theology here at the University of Hampton where we're having this conversation um, and I've run a couple of projects now, theological actual research projects looking at patterns of learning and faith learning among particularly among lay people and at the moment looking at learning in the margins of church and society as well. Right. So I think there's a lot of ways into this conversation and I'm interested in what you have to ask each other in terms of the distinctives and the overlap of what you do and what you study. The what, the how, the why. I wondered if we could start with, with the what. So what is the scope of the sort of learning that you're looking at in your, in your work? And that's changed, I think, over time. And I think, like all good kind of research stuff, as you, the more you find out, the more you kind of start changing your ideas about this. But I think most distinctive for me at the moment is a move away from an account of learning, which is basically education, so away from kind of liberal educational models, um, away from church courses, or away from catechesis too, but thinking much more about the ordinary processes by which people learn faith and learn the living of faith. So, for example, before these research projects, I think I've always been interested in the way in which the, the home, the domestic church, as we call it in my Catholic tradition, is the place of formation. That actually nothing, anything else you do with courses, teaching, theology degrees, whatever it is, is never really going to have the same effective power as whatever it is that's gone on the home, for good and bad, of course. So I'm very interested in the ways in which people are shaped through the ordinary patterns of life. And then after that, to think about how any more formal or intentional patterns of learning or education need to perhaps complement, perhaps stir up something in that life, but they're only ever for me a kind of tiny bit of what we're talking about when we're talking about faith learning and faith education. And so for me, I'm interested, currently interested in what theological learning looks like in what we could probably best describe as non-formal learning environments. So it's not quite as informal as the learning environments that Claire was mentioning there, but nor is it a formal environment uh, like a university or a school or a, or a college. So it's best, I think it's best described as it, it's still facilitated learning for the, for the participants, for those that are all part of it. Um, there is somebody who does the facilitating, but but there's not a set outcome. Um, you don't pass an exam. You don't. You know, there's nothing that's like that about it. I'm interested in that because I used to work in a formal educational institution that did have set outcomes, 
in fact, doubly set. So we trained um, Methodist ministers, deacons and presbyters and uh, Anglican priests. So not only do you work to the standards of the university, but you also work to the standards of the churches. And then I've moved out of that into working with lay people, primarily lay people, in the Methodist church who have not had any access to that kind of learning um, in, the, in the church. So my research at the moment is exploring appropriate pedagogies, and particularly I've been struck by how my commitment to environmental justice informs my own pedagogical approach, and that's kind of where I'm researching mm-hmm. at the moment. And I think that's, for me that's a really interesting thing because, you know, you made reference to your own kind of background in formal theological education around ministry and it just reminded me and encouraged me to reflect on my own kind of journey there because, you know, I've worked, as you know, in um, Cambridge Theological Federation, ecumenically preparing people for, for official, ordained, usually ordained ministry and then I worked in a Catholic seminary which as a member of staff with our seminarians um, who were discerning rather than training in theory. Um, their way into ordained ministry in the Catholic Church, which is a period of over a period of six years, so you know, really substantial and quite different model. But I think in, having moved away from that, what what began to worry me about those was a kind of what what Farley would call the kind of clerical paradigm there, that there are all sorts of assumptions. There is an attention, of course, to informal learning within those places, but that there was something about the way in which inevitably ministerial ed- theological education privileges a certain kind of a instrumentalization of, of, of theological education but also it, it seems to me to be almost inevitably producing an elite unconsciously sometimes sometimes not so unconsciously we're the people who know we're the people who can preach we're the people who can teach so some of the work we did um that will be published so i can sort of name it with um queens and the methodist learning project we, we talked to alumni and one of the questions was how does the experience of theological education in this institution um, then affect how you understand your role as an educator? There were a number of them. I've said majority who had, a, who, for me, had an extraordinary sort of sense of you know well, this is what this is what people should be learning, and I do not understand why lay people aren't interested in decolonizing their faith. You know, well, I can tell you why, because <laughs> it's really not part of most of their lives, in, and there are all sorts of things that are much more pressing on their consciousness. So there was there was a real mismatch, I think, between the, the kind of educational or formative or faith learning dynamics within the community. And the gap between that and actually the kinds of quite proper, and I'm not, you know, I think those things need to be taught in seminaries and, and theological colleges, but there is a huge gap, I think, yeah. between understanding what that education's for and what it is right. on the ground. No, I agree. And I think um, it's interesting you talk about that kind of almost Christian elite and yeah. kind of theological, because it was a, I, I think I probably meant this almost tongue-in-cheek and I, uh, but I, I was always conscious that when I was teaching in a theological college I was teaching in a kind of selected education system I was you know mm. the, and, I, and that's not my background that's not what I would be doing anywhere else and that was some that went some way for me to say actually I'd love to see what happens when you roll this out in in for other people uh, who aren't being trained for anything um, and that got me thinking, again, just about education in general, um, and particularly, I guess, in the global north, um, where people learn to do a thing, mm-hmm. and they don't learn for the love of learning or for, the, or for being cu- just to be curious. Um, I saw that in my own children's kind of education. Um, that, 
at their worst, I'd say they went to exam factories at their best. They went to somewhere that might instill something to want to learn. One of the great joys of the work I do now, compared to the work that I used to do, is that I genuinely know that everybody who turns up in the room wants to be there. (laughs) And they want to learn and they're curious. And that just changed the dynamic of the way in which the sessions go. Once uh, I was working with a seminary colleague and we opened up some courses for lay people, very avant-garde thing to do. He was a priest, he is a priest. His colleague's observation was that when you're working with these lay people, They've done their process, that we don't need to do the work of trying to make connections for them because they're here, they, they know what they want to know about church mm. history or about sacramental theology. And you don't have to do it in the same way as you do with it. often quite naively formed, I think, seminarians who can be a bit sort of pious and religious in the way that ordinary Christians, frankly, are on the whole, mm. <laughs> which is refreshing, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think... And this is an interesting conversation around what do we think theological education is for? You know, why, why do we think that people should have it or go through it or be with it? And somehow that answer is almost, it seems easy if they're training to be in the ministry. The church knows why they want to do that. Um, it becomes more difficult when you're just asking about everyday church folk who might have some role in the church or none at all, in, in depending on where they're at. And I think one of the things that often comes out of the role of of working with lay adults who haven't been exposed to any kind of academic theological work is that there's a there's a grittiness to their reflection yeah. in a way that doesn't because they're not looking for the proper answer yeah. <laughs> or approval or approval that's right yeah, yeah that's not, right. they don't feel they're being no you know doesn't matter whether you approve what they're saying or not exactly yeah. yeah and i think and so and there's a freshness about that and there's so many i mean i yeah, I'm not going to inundate you with anecdotes, but um, there's so many stories of, of stuff that they mention. I'll give you one anecdote, even though I said I promised I wouldn't. Um, we were doing some work on um, the temptations of Jesus. We were having to think about the temptations of Jesus, and we had lots of different ways into, and I bring in various voices from the Christian tradition uh, that had explored the temptations of Jesus. <coughs> and of course, one of the temptations is turn these stones into bread. And about, about five weeks later, we're in another session, and we're looking at Jesus feeding the 5,000. And one of the people in the course said, oh, didn't we say in the temptations, do you reckon Jesus soon did finish that? He said, oh, damn, I've promised not to do this. <laughs> and I thought, that never occurred to me. Yeah, and it just never occurred to me at all. And so, so all good teachers, aren't they? And facilitators of learning are learners themselves. But I seem to get a lot more back when I'm doing it with Laird's yeah. than I did when I was in the theological colleges um, because they're not looking for right answers. Yeah. Or, or as you say, approve. Or they haven't been told what the answers are supposed to be. That's, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the part of this question is an interesting one because I was reading something you'd written and you, I think you, you engaged with Jane Leach and Anthony Reddy. And I think Jane Leach is, is talking about education towards kind of holiness, a kind of Wesleyan tradition. Yeah. And Anthony Reddy, of course, talks about transformation of life and society, kind of liberationist perspective. And I was interested, and I may just have missed it, but I wasn't. It seemed to me that you you did, I think you explicitly say it, that you're not educating for holiness. You know, it's like, well, why not? Yeah, isn't that a thing? Um, but I wasn't clear what, in the end, you, do you have a sense of what the purpose is for these sorts of non-formal lay education? Part of my reasoning for that is partly the work of the organize the part of the organization I work for in the learning network. So if you read all of our stuff, um, then it's about equipping and resourcing yeah, leaders yeah. in the church and, all of, and, and none of it says that <laughs> I'm equipping people for holiness yeah. um, and that that's part of, uh, and that's part of my role. So some of that was about setting it in the context of uh, my current ministry as an educationist. 
So I guess another question is around the relationship between formation and whatever we mean by formation um, and and holiness mm-hmm. and those two kind of questions. One of the things I don't think I've particularly written of this, but certainly within my Methodist tradition, formation is used about people in theological colleges and discipleship is used about people in the church. Yeah. And and it raises questions for me around, you know, if, if we think formation is good and it's good enough for those who are going to be ordained, surely it's good enough for folk in our churches. And how do we, th- well, what do we mean by formation and what does it look like? So I remember at nearly every staff meeting when I was working in a college, it would be questioned, we would be asking that question, how do we know what good formation is? What does it, yeah. how do you assess it? What does it look like? You know, somebody might pass all their essays and get really good marks but are they is is something else happening enough that we think they might make good ministers in the church and we had all sorts of conversations about um how we might judge that you know for those of us that were ordained sometimes we might ask ourselves could i have this person as a colleague in my circuit i remember one person saying do i want this person holding my hand when i'm dying Um, and you know that's and but those aren't academic. You know that's not an you don't have to pass anything to be that kind of person. And I guess you know that relationship between formation and education. I guess uh, I've never really answered it. Yeah. I don't think fully. Because it almost feels to me as an as a outside of that tradition. And I, I've read a lot around the kind of fruitful fields and the discipleship stuff. And, but that language of equipping and training, it's the wrong way around. You know, if you're going to talk about equipping and training, do that with your ministers. The formation that lay people often have already had and are having will often make that old lady, I always talk about old ladies, I don't know why, maybe because I'm turning into one, but you know, all that young man in the church is exactly the person you'd want to be holding your hand. And they have possibly no formal or even non-formal theological education. So there's a sort of odd, there's, there's been, I think, a drive, I think, in relation to institutional decline in the churches possibly, and the whole language and lack of concept of discipleship, in my view, which has, has tended to instrumentalise lay education according to a clergy agenda. You know, we are equipping people, we're training them, we're giving them tools. And I'm like, for what? Right. You know, they are, they are people in the world trying to live lives close to Jesus and to, to share that in a normal, natural way. That, that's what most lay people, like me, are called to be in the world, not, not some other thing or some agency of the institutional church that then needs to be equipped for a task that somebody's already decided for us. So, I, yeah, I wonder if that's all a bit about face. Yeah, I, I suspect, and it, it makes learning utilitarian, obviously. Mm. You know, it has, it's got to be, I mean, back to where we were at the beginning, it has to be for a purpose. Mm. You have to learn for the purpose. So we need, the church is dying, so let's train more lay people to be evangelists. You know, that's how kind of, that would be kind of what we say in the church. And in doing so, what do we what do we do then about training people, or what do we do then about the stuff that you were talking about, Claire, about being an ordinary, everyday lay person trying to live their life as close to Jesus, walking humbly with their gods, mm. trying to do the right thing, and just naturally being able to share stories about their faith just, and just their, their tradition around them, you know, sh- sharing the hope that's within them, all those things, which I think a lot of lay people do do, but don't even know know they do. So, so a bit of me thinks no. If, if lay formation, uh, lay learning, faith learning isn't for holiness, I don't know what it is for. I mean, what would be the point? <laughs> but possibly if anyone's learning. And of course, if you're a minister, you know, you're living out your call to holiness in a particular way, so you need to be equipped for that. Um, but I want, yeah, I just wonder if we've lost sight of the real spiritual telos of, of what we're doing in education across the different sites of learning, I think. Yeah, and I guess... Uh... 
and I'm wondering now, I'm, I'm checking myself a little bit, because I, I do, and I don't think, just mean this about theological learning either, just all learning, is that there is a, there is a justice arc somewhere, that all learning is about me, for me, is about making the world a better place. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, and I'm wondering now, you know, if I, actually I do have a reason why I want people to learn theology and partly that is because I want the world to be a better place um, and so I actually yeah, I'm not just saying yeah you just learn for learning sake but I would say the same for learning maths or music or, um, or how to fish or you know any of those it's about what can we do so that the world becomes better but the theological uh, account of learning whether it's a theological account of maths learning or faith learning um, does it seems to me it carries with it an um, not an assumption exactly, but a, a sense of what the world being a better place might look like, yeah. and and that's not that our children are going to grow up and earn sixty thousand pounds, you know, by the time they're thirty. That that that's um, there may be goods in relation to that human goods, but I think there is something about the Christian idea about what makes the world a better place, which might be to do with eco justice. It might be to do with um, alleviating material poverty. And fundamentally, it's to do with holiness, which includes all those sorts of things. So, uh, you know, I think losing sight of that, you know, let's flip it the other way, remembering that can actually mitigate against, militate against the tendency to kind of instrumentalise this sort of in terms of equipping and training and tools and stuff. Yeah. It sounds like there would be merit then in reversing the direction of learning to equip ministers and trainers and have them somehow learn from the lay, the ordinary Christian in some way. Imagine them by versa. <laughs> and of course, we probably all know wise, often older, you know, experienced pastors who have done exactly that. Mm. You know, so I can say anything. What did I do? It's a Kevin Kelly, moral theologian, died a few years back. But he was insistent that he he was an academic, um, but that he always ran a parish. So always always involved in parish ministry whilst he was an academic, mm. because he said that's the only way that he could do proper moral, what we would call moral theology was he needed to be in touch with what people were really living. Um, so I think there are people who I think have embodied that, but that is not part of the way that we've structured learning in our church communities, I don't think, at all. That's right. Um, and certainly, you know, I look at the, the rest of the corpus of stuff that we as the Learn Network deliver and offer, um, and a lot of it is kind of skill-based, knowledge-based. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what you need to know in order to do this role. Mm-hmm. This is the skill that you need in order to be able to, to do that. And within the Learn Network, what I do have is that I've got access to and I get to hear stories of just ordinary Methodists mm-hmm. who are just going about, you know, trying to work out how to, you know, how to live in a declining church with depleting resources all around mm. them, you know, um, and still serve their communities and still love their, you know, the folk around yeah. them. And, and at least we get to hear those stories. And then that's when we as a team then get to be able to say, are you hearing these stories in your part of the world mm. too? Because mm. we are. So is there anything we can do to help people who keep telling those same stories? Um, and so then, and for me then, that's the... We wouldn't really talk about a curriculum in, in the learning network, but what it means is the curriculum meets a need rather than sets a, a barrier or a boundary that says, right, you must get to this point. But interestingly, anybody who then has an official role, particularly in around worship, so local preachers, then for those groups, we say, oh no, there's a thing you have to exactly. meet. <laughs> uh, but I, I wonder if that's because, and I'm not, I'm not picking you up, I'm silent, this isn't meant to kind of trick you up, but I'm just interested, and I would expect someone to call me out on this as well. 
that you talked about the learning network team listening to these stories so that they could identify the need that they answered. And I'm sure that's a right and good thing to do. The, the risk of that is that it assumes that what you, what you guys are doing in the network are supplying an answer to a need, rather than the other way around, to take out your point, Emma, about, you know, maybe maybe we should be flipping this to sort of like, what is, what is the institutional church, the clerical caste in the church? How are they actually intentionally learning and being formed by those lay experiences? Um, now, I, I know from what you said that you, you would broadly agree with that, but the, the language is a giveaway too, because I yeah. think that's the patterning of our institutional thinking, I think. No, absolutely. And... And if we didn't, if we didn't deliver on the needs of the people, we wouldn't have it. We would be removed from office. Exactly. <laughs> we wouldn't yeah. have a job. That's, that's, that's how, how the structures determine. We yeah. should work. Um, I guess the other good thing, and I hope, I mean, I can't speak for my cause. I, 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 they're a great bunch. So I'm sure they do. Is that we do get? So one of the things that I often say is, I, I get. To, I, sometimes I get to whisper in the ears of power. So because I hear these stories, but they're far removed from the places of power where they might be able to feed those stories in. And I can say, you do know what it's like on the ground, do you? <laughs> you have remembered yeah. what yeah. these people, what it is that's going on there. Um, and so when we're busy faffing about thinking about, you know, we, oh, we need a new, a new report or a new piece of work doing, yeah. um, and say, is that really the most important piece of work we need to do? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because that's not what's going to hit the ground, and that's yeah. not how it's going to be heard when we get there. Um, so I, we do have that, and I think that's quite a unique role actually in the Methodist Church that we sit in that kind of intermediary space. Um, but I, yeah, I take point. We still deliver a service mm. in the end um, as uh, educationalists. Yeah, um, and and some of my colleagues wouldn't consider themselves to be educational leaders. They would consider themselves to be trainers uh, or development practitioners, yeah. um, and would want to shy away from any language about learning um, in in that sense. You know, my very title is interesting, LDO, Learning and Development Officer, and often wondering what does what separates learning and development out. Uh, and there was an interesting, we've got a, um, a Facebook page for, for the Learning Network, and somebody had posted something about, you know, what were some of the experiences that you've learned through? And it quickly moved into a conversation about what do we mean by learning, what do we mean by development, and what do we mean by training? Mm. And that question of power, the place of power, you know, thinking about what we were just saying, that maybe that isn't the place of power, you know. What the lay people are doing, what the ordinary people are doing is has great power in it. Yeah. Untapped in a way. Yeah. How do you do that then? I mean I know that you've maybe not enacted this but studied the way that we see what's going on. Mm. And do you want to talk a bit about your project? Yeah, so I think I've always had a hunch about this, partly because I'm a, a lay woman in a, in a very clerically structured kind of church, um, which I love, I hasten to add. But not, not being a lay woman in that church particularly, but, but you know, I do love the church. But So I've always had an instinct about the importance of formation in ordinary and ho- living holiness in ordinary, and I think that's, that's what sharpens my attentiveness to the research we did. So that when James Butler and I were, started working on this Methodist Learning Project and looking at the way in which people learn faith in a whole load of sites, including sites of formal learning, of course, as well as informal. What keeps coming through is this sense that actually what is most profound for most people, wherever they are, but particularly for lay people, is the church conversation. You know, James and I always talk about the dog, the dog walk. You know, the, the people you bump into on the dog walk and have maybe a few minutes conversation with every day for years. That's the kind of locus that people turn to, or 
they say something about you know what happened in a conversation after church over a cup of tea. And what's very striking is that once professional educators pick this up, they go, oh, right, well, we'll use that. That's a really helpful insight. So what we'll do, and there was a case in one of our project sites where the, the minister picked up on this and said, well, OK, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually go to the tea and coffee after church and I'll, I'll get people to talk about what I preached about. Completely kills the conversation dead. Completely misses the point that this, as soon as you start trying to formalise these things, they become something else. Now, they may be they may be good in that. Don't get me wrong. And they may be learning in that. But it's a very different kind of thing from the kind of the, the consistent air you breathe type of learning that we were observing here. But but the, your question, which I haven't answered, is also what do you do about that? And I think there are a number of things. I think that a growing appreciation of that reality would significantly change some of the thinking and structural thinking that we, we're, we've just described in our, all of our churches. I think it could change the way in which we educate our ministers considerably, not necessarily in terms of curriculum content, but actually in terms of epistemological assumptions and outcome assumptions. So that would be a kind of formal way in which those things come into play. But I'm also increasingly of the view that there's something about allowing these fragmentary, largely hidden, largely undervalued lay realities to become recognised and valued so that, so that people can recognise, can recognise them and name them and narrate them in a way that is appropriate to them, rather than having them kind of engineered, which is the temptation, I think, to actually let them be, but to actually have... I, I think about, I've got in my own head a sort of like a first responder, um, that there may be people within a congregation who are able to listen into a conversation. This may or may not be something a gift that a minister should have, an ordained minister should have, but who can listen to a conversation, can attend to it, and can name the grace that is happening there. And it's actually by surfacing those things that they begin to gain the, the power and authority that it is already theirs, but somehow doesn't have the transformative power that it probably needs to have for the wider community. And those sound very soft things, and I think they are, in the same way that any shift in, for example, a household dynamic is a soft thing, but we also know family systems theories and, and indeed organisational system theories, you only need a small, soft change to change everything because it changes the culture. And I think it's the culture change that is really the difficult and essential thing here. Mm-hmm. So even just having those conversations about these things, if, you, if enough people have those conversations, it will change the way in which we understand what's going on. People. And, you know, on a very simple level, I would love it if, if we could both all belong to churches where people didn't just assume that there was this great kind of mass of people who needed educating. And obviously no one says this, but the implication is like they need to know stuff that we know, so we're going to tell them stuff and then they'll know it. And of course we might learn back things back in return, but basically that's the dynamic. If we could get rid of that dynamic, things would be very different. And for me, that's a theological point, because what that really is saying that you know, it goes back to Matthew 23, 8, I might have made a mistake there, um, call no one teacher, you know, so the only person who teaches is God. So this is, learning formation is an act of the spirit, and it's attending to that that, that all of us should be interested in. I think that's interesting about that idea of surfacing um, and why we would do that, so... There's, there's room for just letting things stay hidden, but also for surfacing them for the transformation of the community, sort of, to enable that gift to be used for, for God. Mm. I think that's really nice. That, that uh, uh, what did you say? Something about the great, noticing the grace. No, what was yeah, that? Yes, sort of naming, the, naming the grace. Yeah. 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 I feel a podcast title coming up. <laughs> um, 
it moves us nicely to thinking about your methodology as well. Did you want to talk a bit about your influences and what you've been doing, Simon? Yeah, although I'll just pick up one of yeah. them to classic, because I guess as educators worked in various settings, we kind of instinctively know. I knew that when I did proper classes, that most of the learning happened in the common room, not in my classroom, because <laughs> it happens over the cup of coffee, and it happens over in those, you know, in the pub later, two weeks later, when you think everybody's forgotten everything that you've talked about. And I, I was thinking about my children. I suspect that they learn more about their identity, their gender, their sexuality with their friends than ever anything mm-hmm. they did with me or the, you know, their mum or, or other family members. It was the, you know it was those conversations that really kind of mattered, wasn't it? And I guess you know, so. The same is true of church life that could be either in church settings or any you know school gate or um, mm, at the yeah. you know, at post office queue or you know, anywhere yeah. those places that are just those kind of little incidental moments I guess and there's some there is a bit of that in the kind of work that I'm doing um, that wants to draw on that conversationalist uh, you know that conversation and dialogue that happens between people and and naming that as the really important space and but I'm particularly interested in my own commitment to um, so a lot of people who write around pedagogy will, you know, talk about what is the what is the educators' commitments, what are their value systems that inform the way in which they they do their teaching, and I think that's kind of what we're talking. You know, what are the things that we value and that we place value on that say actually this is really important when I do this because when I see this work, and um, and so so we we've named a lot about our own experience of church life <laughs> um, and that has somehow informed the way in which we we feel that our pedagogism and or where learning happens and i i'm very committed to environmental justice um, um i uh, my first kind of studies um before theology were all around science and, and all those sort of things and uh, i'm quite committed to that and i just love being outdoors and just put me outdoors for anywhere um, and um Somebody put me on to the work of um, Donna Haraway, who I never know how to describe Donna Haraway, um, um, but uh, some people might describe her as belonging to the kind of new material feminist kind of movement. She's, she tends to stand away from any form of description, um, but I would definitely say she was a, a scientist, um, she's a, a philosopher, and, and she's a feminist scholar. Those, I think those three things are definitely true. Uh, where where you fit her in niche brackets, I think is probably more difficult. And it was her book, Staying with the Trouble, that really uh, spoke to me. Um, and that was the book that I'd been put onto. And she does a lot of stuff in that book. It, um, and it's um, it's not the easiest book to read. Um, and if you're not into, um, if you don't like lots of poetry and lyricism and people using words that you thought you knew but now are used differently or splitting words up to make them sound different. Um, then you, you might find Haraway's work a struggle. But I quite liked it. But what, I, what really struck me about Haraway's work is that even though she's talking about environmental justice, her main thrust seems to be, and, then, and I discovered others that felt this as well, that her main thrust is epistemological in the end. She's, she's asking a question about if we want the planet to be in a better position than it currently is, it's not just about doing lots of things. It's about changing the way we think about how we think. Um, and there was this quote that she, I can't remember the whole quote, but um, it, it begins with, it matters what thoughts we think thoughts with. Um, and that idea that I suddenly realised, you know, if, if we keep doing the same, 
around kind of uh, the way in which we uh, do theological learning, then we'll always keep producing the same result at the end. Um, and so, so I try to bring in um, some more different, and again, it's playing with words a little bit, but it, interestingly, it, it seems to have taken on more, more than words. They, they become more than metaphors for me and for groups of people that I work with. So one, for instance, is the idea of formation that we've talked about, that I tend to talk about, uh, I have used composting and compost as a word for that. And I thought I'd be very clever when I used that word. And it turns out there's people doing it all over the place. Um, and so a friend of mine, Al Barrett, and his co-author Ruth Harley wrote a book called Being Interrupted. Uh, and in there, I think, I think it's in that book, where they talk about um, a resurrection from the compost heap. Um, I know a couple of black theologians who have used composting language around thinking around racism and, and the way that works. There's over in the States, we've uh, bumped into somebody um, who's written a book. She's a soil scientist and she's written a book called Composting Holy Ground. Um, there was a podcast, a really popular podcast um, that's called Composting Christianity. And actually, they don't mean composting Christianity, they mean composting the church, but they call it composting Christianity. Um, and Al Barrett, who I was talking about, and myself have just written an article about composting patriarchal forms of masculinity or masculinity as mastery. And it, it's become a kind of way of thinking about what happens when stuff decomposes and recomposes, which is what I think formation is in people. And how theological education kind of helps to do that decomposing and recomposing. And it's kind of taken on a life of its own that we've now got a gathering happening on a farm in Bristol somewhere in May where all these other people that have been thinking about compost have managed to get them all back together all around. And we don't know where this is going to lead. You know, in good eco terms, it could lead anywhere or nowhere. And all of that comes from a hunch that God in creation already offers all that we need to learn. Everything's already there, but because humanity has distanced itself from the rest of creation. So there was a, uh, another uh, great philosopher, Bayo, I can never say his last name properly, Akomalafe. There was a conversation on Facebook that he was asked to redefine nature because the way in which we define nature always puts humans here and the rest of the world there, as if humans aren't part of nature. And he was kind of saying, you know, but that distancing means that we, we stop learning from them. Certainly in the global north, there are indigenous communities that probably still are much closer to the soil who do learn with the earth and through the earth. And I think that's... So I'm trying to find ways in which that language and those metaphors become more than that. But primarily because... To, I was going to use that horrible phrase of saving the planet, as if, which puts humans at the centre of that process... But if we want to live in a planet that's better than it currently is, it's not just about thinking about recycling, as important as that is, but reframing all that we think about um, and and the way, what Haraway you know, reframing not just what we think about, but how we think about the things we think about. Which is, in a sense, also the role of theology, doesn't it? I was thinking about this, the way that she decenters humanity yeah. and the way that theology, in a sense, decenters humanity in mm-hmm. the conversation. There's quite a parallel there. Yeah, she wouldn't thank us. Her is not. We can do it. She doesn't have to do it. But I think I think that's quite that's an interesting point, though, because I think one of my observations about Haraway's work, which I I, I do enjoy, and like I think it's important, and has really helped me in a number of places, and I've kind of used her thinking, particularly the epistemological insights there. But the, the correct decentering of the human being 
also means for her decentering, well, no, getting rid of God. And I think that underlying that, there is an assumption that somehow religion, or God, actually, is a part of our human power move. And I think she's not wrong in that that is what's happened, but that's to do with our failure to, to really be what God calls us to be, which is creatures. Um, and that, well, a bit like you said there about the podcast that was actually talking about composting the church rather than Christianity, and I think sometimes, you know, she, she, she's, she just conflates God, the transcendent, what's the phrase she used, you know, the sky God, the sky you know, that somehow she doesn't want anything to do with people looking up. But, but that's a very odd refusal of something that actually is quite, uh, as far as we can look back, you know, even the kind of relics of Neanderthal life, you know, that the human beings have looked up to deny that part of the creatureliness of us because of the ways in which that's been perverted and corrupted to become something other than it was meant to be. Because actually what that God thing does is put us in our place. Mm. It exactly puts us in in the Catholicity, actually. That's exactly where that correct relationship with God puts us. Mm. We don't need to get rid of the transcendent to do that. It's just as much of a power move to get rid of God as it Mm. is to use God for our own purposes. Yes, But I, I, want, I want to come push you back a little bit to this compost thing. And, and he says something about composting and re-something. Composing. Recomposing. Decomposing and Decomposing and recomposing. And it reminded me of a, a trope that we discovered in our learning project research around deconstruction as part of formation and learning, which I have a huge problem with. And a bit of me is like, well, are we just, are we just using sort of more kind of organic, friendly language to, dis- to, do, to describe something which in the end um, still supposes that people somehow need to be deconstructed in order to be reconstructed, particularly in ministry training, you, you find that language, they're not, not only there. Um, or is there something significantly different about the language of decomposing and recomposing as applied to learning? Or have I misunderstood how you want it to work? So maybe the bottom line of the question is, Using that language, what difference does that really make? I think it makes two... I don't know. Let me name them all and then I'll give you the number of differences. (laughs) Um, I think some things around process. So it's interesting, um, you know, sometimes you can go to conferences or other spaces that talk about dismantling something or breaking something up. And, um, And I think the process is different to that kind of almost smashing or breaking Decomposition is an intimate affair. It can only happen when bodies rub up against each other. And so this is why it comes back to the kind of conversational stuff, the flip conversation that you just happen to have when you're walking the dog or whatever. Mm. Um, and that it, when we talk about, when I talk about it, I'm not talking about somebody reading the book and thinking, oh, I now think about that differently. Yeah, no, yeah. This is a kind of, um, it's, it's almost somatic. There's a kind of bodily embodied bit to it. Um, and it's, I guess it's about that sense that just being a human being means that there's always bits of me, physically and in my head, <laughs> that are dying and reforming all the time. And what happens, what might happen is a chance encounter conversation with somebody suddenly then means that one way I thought that I thought I knew something isn't the same way anymore. Yeah. Um, so, it's, so it's not necessarily about knowledge. Like again, you know, coming back to that learning thing, it's not necessarily about, despite the fact that I try and give knowledge and do cognitive stuff um, the other thing that's necessary for composting is you can't have all the same stuff 
So it has to be in, you know, the mantra is greens and browns for compost. You've got to make sure you've got the right mixtures. Um, and it's slow, generally. Um, and you need invertebrates and fungi and bacteria. So you need lots of things that kind of come together in order to, for a good composting to work. So then part of my role as a facilitator in a learning community, and I'd like to if we can get a chance to talk about what do we mean by a yeah, learning community. Yeah, yeah. Part of my role in that is to try and make sure there is as much of all the different bits and that they can recognise each other as decomposing and recomposing agents for each other. Which then takes me to the stuff we were talking about right at the beginning, Claire, and the, the stuff that's really important in your work um, around the stuff, everyday stuff that happens in our lives that shape who we become and what we are. And then asking the question in that compost heap, so how does all that, you know, being the mother of four children and, you know, and having a world where you work in this particular way and whatever else happens, you know, the dog dies, or, you know, how does all that shape the way you think about this particular theological thing? What I think is really helpful there, and, I, and it's, that, that's really helpful to me, is a, to expand the importance of that image, although I think I'd want to be clear that it's still composting, still for me, would need to be kept very much an image rather than anything bigger or more kind of, yeah. It is agency, you know, because, because I think part of the problem with the language of dismantling and deconstruction is that it implies agency, so uh, and usually human agency as well. And that's, again, something that James and I, in our research, were very aware of, that although formal educational institutions were often teach, and professional teachers were interested in the processes or the workings of deconstruction and reconstruction, Normal human beings in the course of their lives, with the children and the dog dying and everything, they go through enough deconstruction, thank you very much. They do not need someone else to kind of add to that. Because the composting is actually, I would suggest, something that is, is quite natural to the way in which most of us live our lives. And the way you've described it, I think, is that it's really helpful. But then this added thing that you suggested, that one of the things that the best kind of more intentional learning can do is to add the sorts of matter to any one bit of compost um, that is going to either, well, it's going to change, if you like, the chemistry of what's going on. And the importance of time, I think, is that, again, that was a really huge thing for us, that people were used, again, courses and outcomes and assessments and, you know, justifying why we've taught this in this particular way. This kind of learning, faith learning, takes, it takes time and takes fragmentary time in a way that is much more akin to the sorts of processes that we see in organic processes such as composting than it is to the sorts of intentional processes that we try and codify and put in place and structure. So, you know, I, I think that's a really helpful... I also find the, the other thing with composting is that there's, there's no such thing as waste. So it yeah. means any experience in life, good or negative, um, it's not cast aside. Yeah. And that's how you put in. Yeah. We have Emma and I, for instance, Sam, who, um, Sam Yule, who tells a story of so he's the most prolific composter um, he probably could ever meet. Um, and um, he tells this story of the moment he kind of got it. It was when he was in, in Brazil. And it was a, a somebody else who spoke to him. And he picked up a banana skin and said to him, who told you this had stopped being good? When God created it, he said it was good. Mm. Who's told you now it's not good? Mm. And I think there's something around seeing compost and formation, formation as compost in that sense, um, that says, actually... All of me is involved in this. Pro- you know, it's a fully embodied, fully all of me is yeah. involved yeah, in yeah. that process. Because it can't be otherwise. That's and right. actually, you know, if you're learning whilst in pain, or you're learning while you're 
grieving something, that, that will be part of your learning. That's, right. uh, that's yeah. what the composting image, I think, brings to light. That's yeah. helpful. And this then might make this too utilitarian for us again. And it's all about, you know, can I get away with it or not? Which is that compost, what is left is life-giving. Mm. And so what's left is stuff that grows and gives mm. life to more. And and it's that thing again about, do I want I want the world to be a yeah. better place? <laughs> I was kind of hoping you'd hold off on that, because that's why I wanted to sort of say, this is an image that's really helpful, yeah. that has resonances with what I would want to say in a different way. The problem with any of those kind of metaphors or images is that you can push them that's right. into mm-hmm. places where actually they, mm-hmm. they stop yeah. saying what they really Break. want to say. And, and I think, yeah. you know, this this idea of of learning as a composting thing is, is a, yeah, I can see how that would fit a lot of the insights that we're having to. Yeah. I wonder too if the composting image implies a sort of egalitarian utopia that ignores the power dynamics of certain elements that are going in have more say, then of course it doesn't fit as a, as a metaphor. So the, with a physical compost heap, different elements have more power at different points mm. of the composting. Um, and so at various times, you know, one will be, you'll need more of one or one will be more dominant than the other. I, I guess that is also true in this kind of formational, you know, at some points, you know, my family life might be the biggest thing that's impacting on, you know, my growing and learning and rediscovering and whatever else I am doing in that process. Uh, and other times it might be, you know, the stuff that I've heard in a sermon or, you know, whatever else. So that can also happen um, within the compost heap. One of the interesting things is what, what my relationship is to it, um, to the compost heap. If I'm the facilitator of learning, so I said, you know, mm, like all the yeah, different yeah. bits, do I become the kind of puppet master, that, do you mm. know, or that kind of engineer? And, and I mean that, you know, let's get rid of the compost heap metaphor altogether. Even just talking about education, what what is my role mm, yeah. in that space? Um, well, and I believe it. I'm not just saying the right things. I believe it. I am a student as much as the people in the room are. I can say that. I am learning all the time. In fact, most days I might only be one page ahead than everybody else in the room. But my role isn't the same as all the other people that are in there. Yeah. But for me, that I've really struggled with that. So exactly the same thing. And really, yeah, could just repeat everything you said from my own kind of feelings. But that's for me where two things come into play, which are part of the theological actual research method. One is this idea of the non-expert expert, which I write a little bit about in yeah. Disclosing Church, and, and Helen Catherine and I often discussed. She would, she would be much more reluctant than I was to call on theological expertise. Whereas if I'm in a conversation, I go, oh, that reminds me of something I read in Thomas Aquinas. I have no problem with that. I think that's entirely okay. Now, her reading, I think, might be, and I need to hear this, is that that could be a shutting down of a conversation, you know, that it could be drawing on an expertise that actually prevents a conversation. If that's what it does, that's wrong. But the way the way I began to understand the, the sort of non-expert expert is that, as, as a matter of fact, there are things that I quite like and I've had the privilege to study and I've picked up along the way that I think are quite interesting. And if I can inhabit that life without assuming that my my so-called expertise is somehow better than, has more authority than, is corrective of, and actually just sort of say, you know, this is this is kind of person Claire is, is that she's made up of all this weird shit. I've asked if I could swear on the podcast. I'm too late, done it. I don't know how you're going to do that. Um, and alongside that, recognise that the other people in the conversation will have their own kinds of expertise that may not be recognised socially as expert, of course. That's, that's where the dynamic becomes difficult. So everything then depends on being able to form the kinds of conversational relationship 
where the so-called expert is not the expert in the room. So I think that's one, that's one thing. And I think then the other thing is where the, the, the four voices of theology becomes a, a, almost a formalisation of that, or a kind of, a kind of shorthand for describing that. Because it's genuinely saying that... Um, Can you just briefly say what those four voices are? Okay, yes, thank you. So, so the, the, the four voices, which is the, one of the ways in which we try and kind of make talk about what we're learning in theological action research recognises that God reveals God's self through a variety of ways and that we've kind of mapped these out very, um, what's the word, approximately into these four voices of the, of the operant, which is like what, how people live their faith, the embodied forms that faith takes, the espoused, which is the kinds of accounts that practitioners give of their practice. It, that might be something akin to Jeff Astley's understanding of ordinary theology. And then you've got normative theology, which would be actually different for different Christians, but would be about the received traditions that have got a kind of normative authority. And then formal theological voices, which would be from the academy, could be theological, could be sociological, could be all sorts of things. It's it's to do with that kind of so-called expert learning that we recognise socially in that way. But the point about the four voices is that it says that actually none of those are expert, and in fact none of them are really even discreet, because there is no academic who doesn't have this other stuff going on and there is no normative that it doesn't come from lived experience and practice you know that this, these things are deeply deeply interpenetrated and actually compost is quite an interesting image to describe that as well and that the spirit speaks to all of these things and that that then when that's fully appropriated by everyone in the conversation and that i sigh because that is a big ask that actually gives permission for the oddities of the formal voice to come up alongside the the power of, of the practice of the, the, the Christian who works with the homeless or whatever it is, to, to be not, it's not even a matter of equality, they're, they're actually different sorts of things doing different kinds of stuff in the conversation. So that, for me, informs the way that I would understand teaching. I genuinely just, I think, you know, I think what I do here at the university or at the seminary or do if I run a course in the parish, I, I don't think it's unimportant, but it is a tiny thing compared to the rest of what's going on. And I think it's, that changes again in this kind of soft systems way if you really appropriate that that changes the way you do everything and i think i think at its best it can even change the way it's received by the the, the learning communities i mean i i think i yeah i mean i wouldn't disagree on you and i think certainly the four voices and i love that actually that you know that in that kind of composty kind of mm. way i've not thought of it the four voices in that way before i i'm just i was just reflecting as you were talking i'm thinking so what do i what do I actually think I'm doing when I'm mm. in that role? And there's something around conversation again, I think, for me. So I never think about necessarily, let's just pick a, I don't know, let's choose ecclesiology. So let's say, um, you know, the, the study of the church, the way I would want to approach that with a group who might be wanting to explore um, the nature of the church, the theology of the church, would be, right, these are some of the conversations that the church has had about itself. Um, some of the people have talked like this. Some of the people have talked like that. There's been, um, you know, there's been this guy called Avery Dulles and once did this. And, you know what I mean? And just, and just have lots of those things. I say, right, that's the conversation that we've all been having. And part of the thing I bring to the conversation, to this conversation, is I've been doing a bit of that talking as well. I've been in that conversation, and I'm just bringing it into this room. And I used to talk. I've probably moved on from this, but in my earliest days of thinking around education, I used to think about theology as a, as a party in a big house. 
and that you know you've got a couple of people talking in one room. You've got you know I don't know. Let's think of um, some past. We've got uh, Aquinas talking to um, Carbart. Carbart. Yeah, conversation. <laughs> so they're having a conversation in there, um, and then. In another room, there's um, Catherine Keller talking to Simon McFig, and yeah. I, I overhear something. I go, oh, yeah. can you come into this room? You're yeah. really interested in this conversation. Yeah. And part of my job is doing that yeah. um, and bringing those conversations together. And then what I want to try and do in a space is get other people talking about their conversation um, in light of this conversation that's happened in, in the church. Um, and the study of theology is so broad, you know. Um, you know, we've got so many disciplines that f- feed into other disciplines mm-hmm. um, and are interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary themselves. Um, it means that normally there's somewhere, somebody has got somewhere mm-hmm. that you can say, oh yeah, I know about this. Uh, I had to do a course at work once where we did, we learned yeah. all about this and, and that can come into the conversation as soon as it enriches that space. I was think some of the composting is around helping people recognise I think we were talking about it before, you were talking about it, about, you know, that we're all shaped in all these different kinds of ways, but most people don't know that that's how they've been shaped. Um, and one of the things that I think, one of the things that I've witnessed, I think, as I've, I've helped to form these learning communities, which actually are just big conversations, mm. um, one of the things that I've learned is that people can figure out why they disagree with each other much better when they know why they were right, when they think, oh, that's why I think like that. Mm, yeah. And, we, you know, I don't know, we would probably call it reflexivity in the, in the academic world, but I wouldn't want to give it as grand a title. But in the Methodist Church, for instance, you know, we've just gone through, finished a process a few years ago, and I know the Church of England are currently doing it, called um, God in Love Unites Us. It was around, you know, the sexuality mm. bits. And I was part of some of the conversations around that, and we did some kind of, th- I did a little Informally, it wasn't part of my work in other spaces. I did other bits of work theologically around that. And what was really helpful for a lot of people is to work out how they, oh, that's, I come to this from this place. That's why I feel like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, that person isn't out and out wrong. It's just yeah. that I've yeah. come to here from a different place. And that's something that I didn't often find in theological colleges, where people would defend their yes. position. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and almost that was the, that was kind of a badge of honour. I can defend my position. Yeah. Whereas um, in these spaces, they seem much gentler spaces for people to say, oh, yeah, I know why I feel like that yeah. now. Because I was raised this way. Yeah, I was yeah, this is my experience. Yeah. We probably have a few minutes left. Are there things that you... We're hoping we would talk about that we haven't yet. I'm conscious you mentioned learn, learning community and have used that language in the way you describe what you do. Yeah. So for me, that became quite important in the work that I do now because I think the learning community in a, in a more academic or formal setting is almost almost kind of given. I, I was trying. I was um, talking to my son who's you know, trying to be a teacher. Who's, well, he's now a teacher. And... You know, he said things like, oh, yeah, they said, um, don't ever praise a young person for doing something that we expected them to do. You know, if they put their hand up, don't say, oh, well, well done for putting your hand up. We expect them to do that. So don't tell them that it's good. Um, and, and I got a sense, actually, you're right. I didn't have to work very hard to create a learning community in a classroom or a seminar room because everybody expected, everybody already had an expectation of what that space was and how to behave in it and how to use it. Whereas I do have to do that in these spaces. Mm. But I'm conscious also of another difference 
which is that I've gotten I've got no equivalent to what was then the tutorial relationship. Yeah. So if somebody, I mean, I don't think it has ever happened, but if somebody is unraveling <laughs> rather than decomposing slowly, yeah. <laughs> um, I've got no way of pastorally picking that up. Yeah. And there's a kind of pastoral responsibility in learning. Um, so creating the right community in which they can pastorally care for one another um, and in that sort of space, I found, I found it tricky but also hugely rewarding mm-hmm. when it happens. So what I love is when new people come and then they'll just drop me an email and say, oh, I've never been in a place where everybody would mm-hmm. just put up with my wacky ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. say, ah, oh, that's yeah. the kind of community we were looking for. And I know a lot of the work you describe is being done on Zoom as well. Because when I hear a learning community, I think about communities of of practice and and Venga, and and, and that seems to me to actually be a little bit different from what you're describing. Um, And I wonder, and this isn't isn't to alarm you, but I wonder if actually the problem with those Zoom learning communities is actually if somebody was really, really in trouble, it would be almost impossible, actually, to to follow up. And And not only that... That, they, that if, if anger is even a bit right, yeah. the most powerful learning that goes on is actually within whatever community they're a part of. So any course, I think, runs the risk of abstracting people from what is their primary community yeah. learning, um, a community of practice, and giving them some other learning, which they, which they then have to connect up. But that's, I think, exacerbated by, by Zoom-based learning, which isn't to say it's not a good thing, but it, just, it, it, it raises another set of questions, I think, about the ways in which you know, this learning, this faith learning in ordinary them, so preoccupied by, goes on and is, I think, clearly the most powerful form of learning, and, and how you then join that up with these sort of other experiences which are usually taking people outside of that primary community of practice and community of learning. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating because it has, um, uh, there, there are three streams that I that helped facilitate and, and and they all started during lockdown so that we had a lot of people that were interested because people had a little bit more time they, they've waned a little since then but still popular enough to keep running. But they, the thing that um, came really interesting is that emails started to flow. So I would mm, you know, um, I'd send emails yeah. with a Zoom link um, and I'd always BCC all the participants so they wouldn't annoy each other's emails. Um, but suddenly I'd get an email back saying, um, oh, I had a conversation with my minister on Sunday mm-hmm. and this uh, I told him about this. Or he said this and I said, oh, I know about him. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a conversation about it. And I'd just get these little kind of mm-hmm. emails back. And it was at that point I thought, oh, something's forming. Here. Yeah, There's something yeah. forming. And yeah. all right, it was around me uh, in that sense. But then people in the actual Zoom conversations, what I realised was I needed early on in the conversations to create breakout rooms really early on just to do the, since last time, what's happened. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yes that's right. That's right. It's not that they do the learning with you and there's some nothing happens. That's right. Yes. <laughs> And for some, they got that immediately. For yeah. others, they they um, they needed a little bit of help, you know. So I'd yeah. say things yeah. like, you know, did you hear something on Sunday at church mm. that resonated? Mm. Did there's something that jarred? Something mm. that um, I sometimes have a it's my very basic way of trying to help people assess how they're responding to something, which is the I call it the wows, ouches, and hums method. Mm. What makes you go wow? I love that. What makes you go ouch? I'm not so keen on that. And what makes you go hmm? I need to think about that yeah. a little bit yeah. more. <laughs> and um, 
And so just asking that, you know, since last week, what made you go, wow, what made you go, ouch, what made you need to think a little bit more? Um, and I realised that they need, that space was needed long before we did any more yeah, yeah. building or scaffolding or whatever language we want to use from the world of teaching. And I think that's what helps to create those kind of safer communities. And I think there is something around safety. I read, um, it's a lovely little Grove booklet by Mike Higton called mm-hmm. Vulnerable Learning. And which talks about his own PhD process. Hans Frey, I think it was, who's his PhD was on. Um, and and you know, and again, this fits with some of the composting. He he writes in that book about the kind of the dying to self. You know, there's a, there was a kind of dying, and he relates that to the disciples that they, they there was a way of knowing that had to kind of die for them in order for a new way of knowing to kind of take on. That happens in these processes, but in order, and he calls it vulnerable learning, in order for that to happen, um, safe spaces are required um, for that. And that made me reflect on my own experience of academic theology and my own experience as a learner in those environments where sometimes it didn't always feel that safe. (laughs) And and the importance there, that which again we've not really talked about, of the pedagogical relationship so I'm just thinking about Mike's Mike's thought on vulnerable learning and his supervisor, and, and as, a, as a doctoral supervisor myself, you know, that there's, I don't know whether university management know this, lots more goes on in that relationship if it's working well than the kind of supervising of the writing of the thesis in, in the kind of formal sense, because it needs to be built on a relationship of some trust. Um, and, you know, Aquinas knew this. So everyone thinks about the soul as this great kind of di- uh, this great kind of monolithic thing. It's a teaching document. You know, it's actually about a con- set up as a conversation between the teacher and the learner and the, qu- and the questions on the basis that, he takes this very seriously, that nobody can teach anyone, only God teaches anyone. So all you can do as the so-called teacher is kind of be alongside people and open up spaces and, and and ideas that maybe they haven't come across that maybe God will work through and that, that the agency is all God's. But what becomes crucially important there is the, and you talked about safety, which is one way I think about, but the, the trustworthiness of a, of a relationship, which is which is shaped by a certain kind of love, I would suggest. Yeah. Um, mm, that seems like a really nice place to conclude. <laughs> <laughs> Because in our theme crafting hope, that feels very hopeful. And so thank you very much, both of you, for your contribution. I hope you felt like you had a space to air your crazy ideas. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Which weren't crazy at all, of course. Great conversation. Okay. Thank you for listening to this conversation, facilitated by the Susanna Wesley Foundation. You can engage with our work through following us on Twitter and Facebook and at our website, susannawesleyfoundation.org. We would love to hear from you.